You are listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information and to access hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. This lecture, Writ Large, Printing, Painting, and Conversion in 16th Century America, was presented by Dr. Thomas Cummins from Harvard University at the 2018 conference Typography, Illustration, and Ornamentation in the Early Modern Iberian Book World, 1450-1800, held at Marsh's Library in Dublin, Ireland. Thank you, John, for the introduction, and, and thank you, Sandy, for the invitation. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. This is going to be a slightly different talk than what we heard uh, today, but it will be somewhat in line with the aims, I hope, of the, uh, of the uh, conference. And so, because I'm dealing with a world that's slightly outside of Europe, I think it's best to begin with, begin with just a few uh, parameters uh, for the talk. And first, there were two very different systems of transcribing and transmitting uh, information in the two areas that I will discuss today, that is Mesoamerica and the Andes. In Mesoamerica, there was a pictographic uh, hieroglyphic system, as you see uh, represented here in the Codex Vegemayer, uh, which is actually a magical calendrical system. I don't need to go into it, but you can see it's a screenfold book uh, that the Spanish uh, uh, encountered and destroyed basically uh, almost all of them uh, in bonfires. Uh, and the other system, uh, actually a bit more complex uh, in some respects, uh, took place in the Andes, and that's what you see at the bottom there. Uh, this was a mnemonic system based upon a uh, central cord of which were independent cords that uh, come down and are knotted uh, in a uh, system, uh, a decimal system. But that decimal system is actually based upon a binary system of right-left. In other words, this is really, uh, one could see it as a coded system, very much like a computer system. But these are the two systems uh, that are used at the time of the Spanish invasion, uh, in which uh, the Aztecs controlled basically a good part of uh, what is now known as Mesoamerica. This area right here, uh, which will then become, as you see, uh, the Viceroyalty of Mexico. And this is the Inca Empire known as Tawantinsuyu, place of four parts that runs basically below Santiago uh, de Chile. I don't think it really gets down that far, but it doesn't matter, up to the border of present-day Colombia along the spine of the Andes, as you all know. But actually, that then becomes the second vice royalty that extends from Chile uh, through to what ultimately becomes the vice royalty of Rio de la Plata, but to Argentina, all the way up, including Panama, and of course the vice royalty of 
Spain also included the Philippines uh, in the 16th century. This was a huge, huge area of diverse peoples. These socio-political entities uh, different by nature, that is, these are people who were not in contact, had very different languages and very different social systems, uh, ultimately became, as I said, the centers around which these two great vice royalties of New Spain and Peru were organized. And it will be the languages of these two areas, that is, uh, basically Nahua and Maya and other languages of Mesoamerica, and Aymara and Quechua, that will become impressed into the books that will be printed uh, for native conversions. Uh, most importantly, uh, I will be concentrating on Mexico City and Lima, the capitals of, uh, uh, of the two uh, viceroyalties, because they became the centers of printing in America. Uh, and these Mexican and Andean systems of symbolic technology were subsumed within the overarching print culture of Europe. They, weren't, they, they did not become extinct. People still use quipus uh, in the Andes, and uh, pictographic systems are used still today uh, for reasons of political and also uh, legal reasons, but I won't go into that. Uh, but this is to understand that print culture becomes dominant uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but really, just as in Europe, the majority of the books that we'll be looking at and talking about, as well as prints, uh, were produ uh, produced there, were centered on religious subjects. But differently, because here... In America, the need to publish these books was really based on the need for the conversion of people who had never heard the word of God. Very different than what is going on in Europe, except actually it's not quite true because, as you know, both in Spain, Italy, uh, and other Catholic countries, the peasants become known as nuestros indios. That is, they are seen, the rustic people are seen in more or less the same condition as the Indians of the Americas in some respects. It's basically a derogatory term. Uh, I shall first introduce a few examples of what I mean uh, of, in terms of these uh, books uh, to discuss how they, both as a printed text and, and illustration, became an object that extended beyond the page, uh, beyond the book, and became actually, in and of themselves, a major subject of representation, uh, both within European and an indigenous context in media in America. That is, the book is, of course, the center of what we're talking about, but the book is a launching pad, in a sense. Uh, to extend into areas that often are uh, unexpected and perhaps unintended. And I'll end by exploring actually two books. Uh, they're images, 
and their possible relationship in representing America, not in America, but in Europe. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, Diego Valadez's 1578 Retorica Cristiana, which you see uh, on your left, uh, which was published in Perugia, and Theodore de Bree's 1588 publication of Thomas Harriet's brief and true report of the new found lands of Virginia. Uh, with uh, the illustrations being based upon John White's watercolor sketches, which he made while he was in Virginia uh, with Sir Walter Raleigh. The two books about America really could not be more different in intent, one based upon a spiritual economy, that is the Rhetorica Christiana, obviously, and the other on a mercantile economy with the idea of selling and settling in Virginia. Yet I will suggest that the illustrations of Valadez find an echo in the illustrations by Debris of uh, Harriet's volume and uh, uh, White's images. Now, I'm not going to suggest that there is some kind of causal argument, uh, as I don't think it could or should be made. Rather, I think that there is an attempt to allow images with their text to help emerge the viewer, that is the European, into the intentions of the author giving a kind of experiential reality, if only virtually, to people who actually will never go to America, who will buy these books, collect them. Uh, and therefore, we're going to get a different kind of book and a different kind of reading and a different kind of relationship between text and image. And the point is that there is a much greater back and forth between America and Europe, and that printing and printed books uh, are a complicated process of how we understand what was imagined to be desired for these places, both in America by uh, the different uh, monastic orders and then by printers and illustrators as they come back uh, and disseminate the knowledge and the experience uh, that they acquire. The question then is why and how might this be? I think it's first it's very crucial to remember that movable type printing, 1455, the Gutenberg Bible, you can dispute that, but around there. And America, there's no dispute, 1492, Columbus, are almost simultaneous in the experience of Europeans. One might argue that they in some way reify each other. That is, the two might be considered uh, synonymous and signifying the new, the new world, both in terms of knowledge, the production of knowledge, and the knowledge that is new. And this is clearly represented uh, in the first sheet of Jan van der Stadt's his name sometimes Stradenis is uh, Nova Reperta, that is, New Inventions of Modern Times. Now, the series was commissioned 
by the Almanani family uh, of Florence, uh, and originally published by Philip Gall around 1590. And this is the first, this is the piece of 20 prints. Uh, this the frontest page, uh, the first title page in 19 plates. It was engraved by Jan Collart II, uh, after Jan de Vanderstraat's uh, images. And the series was, as I said, was commissioned around 1590. And what we see here to the left is a young, naked woman pointing to a rondel with a map of America and the text Columbus, Christopher Columbus de Manator. And to the right, an old man, seen from behind, turns away from the new. This is the new world, and this is the old world giving way. Um, both figures carry a snake biting its own tail. These elements, of course, depict the Orodovaros in a classic alchemist style as a symbol of continuous destruction and continuous renewal. <laughs> On the right rondel is written Flavius Amalfatanus Inventor, that is, the inventor of the compass. Now, I will go through some of these images. You have to take some of what was invented newly as, with a grain of salt, but this is all late 15th century, 16th century inventions. Uh, <clears throat> between them, in the center, as we go down uh, from the cross above, right below it, we see, of course, uh, is a printing press with sheets of printed text hanging on a line. Now, I'll forego the descriptions of the other inventions uh, for want of time, but simply point out the centrality of the relationship between the discovery of America and the invention of movable type within certain parts of the human imagination as it's depicted here. There is no mistaking that they are understood as new and newly known. The orb on the left shows now a very clearly defined outline of the boundaries of America. That is, it's written and the forms of the two or one continent, depending on where you're from, uh, that is, uh, South America and North America, are recognizable in their contours. This is so different than how Columbus first portray portrayed America in the first extant uh, image of America done on his second voyage. And I hope you can see it, but this is a two-page manuscript, uh, and that line up there is the first image of America. That is, we see the open outline of the shore of a still undefined place simply called Hispanola. The lack of contours, the lack of mountains, rivers, peoples, all unknown, <laughs> unseen, only suggest. But what is suggested 
can only be imagined to come. Here, just with the printing press, we now see it filled. That outline, once open, now defined. The first plate of the Novo Repetta is perhaps the most famous. Here we see Amerigo Vespucci, the Florentine with compass, who stands before the near-naked America as she arises from her hammock. This world, as Vespucci describes it, is full of people and animals unknown to the ancestors. And I'm not going to read the text uh, of Vespucci and his letters, but uh, this is very, very clearly represented in the uh, 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 in this image, and it has both references to the Caribbean. Our word hammock comes from the Caribbean, but what you see here uh, is a, clearly a Tupinamba. Uh, club, etc., and different animals. Uh, and this is something that uh, Vespucci actually articulates in his letters, so that even though this is an incredibly allegorical image uh, with uh, uh, Vespucci standing there, actually more or less looking like Columbus uh, and holding uh, the instrument of the navigations uh, uh, and this allegorical figure of uh, uh, America arising to greet him and to learn from uh, the new inventions of, Ameri uh, of Europe. This world, as Vespucci describes it, uh, oh, I already read that, uh, so much ink really has been spilled over this, uh, this, this image. In fact, it's not really ever acknowledged that it's part of a series of six plates. If you look at Desartaux's use of this image, he a, gets it wrong. Uh, he doesn't know who actually produced it, uh, but and he says it's Columbus, not Vespucci, but it, this is then uh, used as an image about how the Europeans imagined America, and as you can see in the back, that there is uh, cannibalism going on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The word cannibal actually also comes from the Caribbean. Uh, anyway, uh, there's no sense in, in going on into this much of a description of it, uh, but I won't say more than that it's one of the most emblematic allegorical images of America that will be re reproduced again and again and again. Uh, and so I'll move on to the next image, or not the next, uh, plate four, which depicts a much more crowded and non-allegorical scene, uh, but much more dynamic, in which we see the workings of the press. Uh, in all of its stages. That is, the allegory of discovery gives way to the depicting of the facts of real invention. Yet, as one leaves through these, one cannot help but see the relationship that is first announced in the title page and then is spread before you in these large uh, prints. In fact, it's very difficult uh, to understand the impact of the discovery of the new world without the dissemination of that discovery by the printed page. One could only imagine what the knowledge of America would have been like in Europe 
had it all been done by manuscripts, passed around. It just would not have had the same immediate impact. And you all know how many times Columbus's letter was published, etc., etc. And just try and imagine that without the printing press being just 40 years before. More important, perhaps, one cannot imagine the settlement of the New World, as I say, without the printing press. And the New World could not become the New World it was without the printing press. That is, it became a firmly established first in Mexico City with a contract signed between Juan Gromberger and Juan Pablos in Seville in 1539. This is really only 18 years after uh, the uh, uh, conquest of Mexico and really only 10 years after all the disruptions with uh, Cortes and the first Audiencia, so that it's almost at the beginning of the real foundation of that city uh, as it's being rebuilt. And it's the bishop, Juan de Zumarraga, uh, a very tough character who had just uh, gotten through uh, the uh, uh, trials, witch trials in uh, the Basque area, who then arrives to Mexico City, who first gathers up the manuscripts and burns them, and then, uh, that is, the pre-Columbian manuscripts, and then calls upon uh, Kronberger and does the contract with Kronberger to come to America. And uh, his agent, that is, uh, Juan Kronberger's agent, is Juan Pablos, who's an Italian. And I don't have time to go into uh, one of the really interesting facts about printers in uh, the Americas, both in Mexico and in Peru, but many of them are not Spanish at all, and they uh, run afoul immediately of, or not immediately, but very often run afoul of the Inquisition. Uh, so that there is always that double-edged part of printing and knowledge and who you are, uh, especially in the New World, where only... Uh, old Christians are supposed to, and Spanish old Christians, are allowed to immigrate. Uh, but I show you here two of the very first uh, examples of uh, Juan Pablos's work in Mexico. It, the first is the second edition of the first known book to be published in the Americas. It was published in 1539, almost immediately uh, after his arrival. The Breve y Más Comediosa Rotrina Cristiana en Lengua Mexicana y Castellana. Immediately you see that it's a bilingual text and it is meant to teach the doctrine. So that this has an instrumentality here. That is, these are books uh, that are to be used in uh, uh, the teaching of Christian doctrine. These are rather simple fare in terms of printing, as you can see. Uh, the frontispiece is based simply on the uh, uh, text as it's placed in the center there. The title uh, with the four uh, simple blocks that outline and create the border of the uh, 
um, of the uh, frontispiece. Uh, quickly, however, printing in Mexico City turned to producing critically important new metatexts, such as bilingual dictionaries and grammars. And we saw uh, that Nebrija, who t- uh, produces the first grammar, the Spanish grammar, that is a prototype for what is going to happen. And more importantly, what the prototype for what's going to happen in the New World is Nebrija's Spanish-Latin uh, dictionary. In fact, it's, that's what ba- it's based upon. And as I was discussing earlier on, one of the great problems is that Nebrija's discussion of Latin grammar also is used uh, to, uh, as the matrix by which indigenous languages will be pressed into it so that uh, Nahua, uh, Aymara, and Quechua will be condensed into the idea that, that Latin is the perfect language and perfect grammar and everything else should fit into it. Well, they don't. Uh, but uh, so you can see how this uh, 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 transmission of both uh, technical as printing and intellectual follow one another. Uh, these new books, these meta books, should I say, uh, allowed for learning and then teaching Christian doctrine by uh, the mendicant orders, the Augustinians, the Franciscans, and the Dominicans, the Jesuits only come about 50 years later, throughout very different linguistic eff- uh, 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 areas. And I show here... Uh, the efforts of the second printer in Mexico, uh, Antonio Espinosa, who worked with Juan Pablos until 1559. And it is a bilingual Nahua uh, Spanish confesario. It was written, uh, composed by Alonso de Molina. And like many polyglot publications, the texts are laid out in corresponding columns of Spanish and uh, and. Uh, Nawa, so you can just see here, Nikan, which means, and it's translated literally as Aki, uh, and was, which is very interesting because uh, there's indexicality in Nawa in which you always have to have this deictic Nikan, and it's translated directly into Spanish. You wouldn't normally uh, present this in Spanish this way, but it is a literal translation, not from the Spanish to the Nahua, but Nahua here into the Spanish. But it's still about uh, a, uh, uh, a, a confessionario. Um, like many polygons, it's, it's uh, laid out in corresponding columns with sections left for the impressions of woodblock images. Now, these are very stock images. Most of them were brought from New Spain or were recarved in America. Uh, that appear time and time again, both in Mexican and then in Peruvian books, when printing arrives in Lima nearly 50 years later. In the case of Molina's book, the images often illustrate the text, and we can see how the woodblock uh, 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 are used uh, in the terms here of the frontispiece uh, such as for uh, Fray Alonso de Veracruz's Physica Spe- uh, Specula- 
speculatio, which uh, treats the study of the investigation of physics on the nature, uh, treated base, and is basically uh, based on uh, Aristotle's eight books of physics. And actually, it's the very first book in America that was uh, published and printed, should I say, uh, that is about Aristotle. And it was intended to be used in the new university established in Mexico City. And the main divisions in the book uh, are generally correspond to the works of Aristotle. Each book is divided into speculaciones, uh, particular studies that can be understood as chapters. And the writing is presented according to uh, the scholastic method, proposing first the opinions or negative affirmations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I lay that out because the other side of printing is to provide books for the new university, which is set up along the lines of Salamanca. And one of the great books of 1555, of course, is Cervantes de Salazar's Dialogues, written in Latin to teach Latin to the elite students uh, of uh, Spanish and some indigenous people. But it's a great book because what it does in Latin is it walks you through the new city of Mexico uh, in the most beautiful way uh, uh, using the Albertian uh, new uh, system of dialogues. But here I put that up, the dialectica, the first Aristotelian uh, uh, text published in the New World. Uh, you can see the matrix of the uh, uh, portada, uh, uh, frontispiece here uh, in the middle. Uh, but on the right, what you see is uh, the same metrics being used five years later for an entirely different kind of book. Dialogo de la de Doctrina Cristiana en la Lengua Michoacán. Uh, and Michoacán is the area that is to the west of, uh, of Mexico City. Uh, it's a completely different language. It's Puro Pachea, uh, has nothing to do with Nahuatl. But it was written by the French Franciscan Martino uh, Gilberti, who had first published a grammar uh, of the language, and also published a vocabulary with Juan Pablos. The point is uh, that it's critical to have both the meta text, that is, these uh, 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 vocabularies and uh, grammars, artes, before you can really begin to use these other texts, uh, because most of the new uh, Franciscans coming in, this is an area settled by the Franciscans and Dominicans, uh, don't speak. Well, even if they speak Nahuatl, they're not going to speak Puro uh, That's it's, it's about as different as Czech is from English. Uh, or actually, it's probably just as uh, different as Basque is from Spanish. So, uh, you know, learning, uh, if you learn Nahuatl, it's not going to really help you. Uh, uh, the point is that printing books on a descending, a descending hierarchy of language needs were instrumental in the intercommunication in America, first in Mexico and then in Peru. And the first printer in Peru, Antonio Ricardo, actually came from Mexico, where he had already set up with the Jesuits in Mexico City, who came uh, 
to uh, Mexico around uh, 1575. And in Lima, uh, he again found patronage with the Jesuits. And the Jesuits in, in Peru become uh, incredibly important for uh, printing uh, and advocates for having a printing press. Uh, and so he finds uh, patron. In fact, the, the Jesuits do protect him after he is accused uh, uh, or brought before the Inquisition. Uh, he finds patrons, and his first printing is the Pragmatica, which is what you see there on the left, uh, probably not very well, but it is a four-page explication of the lost 10 days of the Gregorian calendar uh, in 1584, which, you know, you have to think about this. You just, Spanish invade, setting up their own calendar, their own liturgical calendar, everything's going right for the first 60 years, and then they said, wait a minute, no, you lost 10 days. Uh, and everybody had their own calendar already, but uh, so you need something like this. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I always find this just incredibly funny to me in some perverse way. And then the following year, uh, 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 Antonio Ricardo uh, is called upon, and this is why the Jesuits want him, is to publish... Uh, three volumes in one, uh, which were the result of the Third Council of Lima. And what you see here is just one of these, the Doctrina uh, Cristiana. Uh, what's important about these is these are the mainstay for the next 300 years of catechetical teaching uh, in Peru, Colombia, uh, Bolivia, etc. Uh, they are trilingual uh, texts. Uh, in Spanish, Aymara and Quechua. And if you were to go to Bolivia today, you would hear Aymara. If you were to go to the highlands of, of uh, uh, Peru, you would hear Quechua, different dialects, etc. These are very much living language, just as Nahua is, just as Purupachea is. Uh, and you have uh, the Doctrina Cristiana y Catecismo para la Instrucción de los Indios. You have the Tercer Catecismo e Exposición de la Doctrina Cristiana por Sermones. That is, and it's sermons that will be read. I mean, uh, I know that they're read 200 years later because you'll hear them repeated by indigenous peoples in, in certain kinds of texts. Uh, and then the Confesionario para las Curras de los uh, de Indios. And what's interesting is we can see Ricardo's uh, debt to Antonio Espinosa, the second printer in Mexico, who lent him the equipment and the money to establish his press, uh, first in uh, Spain and uh, then in uh, Mexico. Uh, if we look at these two uh, 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 images, one from a book uh, published by Espinosa in 1569, Confessionario, uh, in uh, Nahua or Mexicana, in Castellano, and on the right, a book published by Ricardo in 1598, known as Simbolo Católico, uh, and you can see that it's in Quechua, Apodios Camac Santa, 
I mean, uh, it's the Lord's Prayer, actually, but uh, but in Quechua, and it's a bilingual text. It's a it's a wonderful book. But uh, the point is that they and and I don't I couldn't find the exact matches, but you can find exact matches between uh, uh, both the typeset and uh, also uh, the uh, images, the blocks, uh, so that this transmission. Uh, is very, I mean, it's, you know, A, everybody, there are not a lot of printers, first of all, but second of all, they all know each other, and it's all a business that's going first from Spain, from Seville, to Mexico City, then down to uh, Lima. Uh, and uh, what's really interesting is that uh, even though, uh, you know, Antonio Ricardo is in in Lima, and there's no way that uh, that uh, he that uh, Espinosa could ever get to him. Uh, he, when he dies, he still leaves in his will exactly how much he still owes him, and is going to pay him back, and his widow has to pay him back. So that there's a very tight bond there. Uh, clearly, there's certain things he probably needs still from Mexico. Uh, the other aspect of this that you don't have to think about in Europe is just getting paper. I mean, the amount of paper that's coming down and, and the bulk of it is, is remarkable. I return to Jan van der Street's penultimate print as it depicts a related and important newly discovered invention, especially important in the evangelization of America. It depicts copper plate engraving. So in van der Street's uh, 19 uh, images, a good third of them deal either with printing or with the discovery of America or with objects that were used for the discovery uh, in navigation. Uh, as I say, it depicts copper plate engraving, but most salient is the engraved image that we can see being finalized. The rest of it you can't see, it's very hard. You can't see what's on here. But right here, you can see this, pla this uh, pl uh, uh, print being pulled. Uh, and what is it? Uh, it's clearly a, a crucifixion. That is, that is the uh, emblematic thing that is being pulled off of here. And the amount of engraved prints sent to America is just astounding. Nobody's ever counted them up, but uh, it's, it's truly uh, astounding. And we know that because most of the paintings in America are based on a number of different prints that we, one can identify. And there's a great source for that uh, called Pesca. You could just uh, go to that. Uh, but again... My point is that in the imagination of, uh, of the Europeans, there's the use of this engraving for devotional images uh, and the discovery of America. And the reason I say that is such engraving came to Mexico and Peru in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. And I show two plates that have survived uh, because after being exhausted as printing plates, uh, they were painted on the other side, the flat side. There's, there's a lot of copper painting in America. Uh, and uh, they, these engravings uh, 
are unlike the books I just discussed because they were actually disseminated out into the populations. That is, the books that I've been showing you do not go out into the populations. They stay within the, uh, uh, the monastic communities and, or the clergy. Uh, but the Peruvian plate, produced under the auspices of the Jesuits and perhaps made in the area of Lake Titicaca, which is the southern part of Peru, it borders with uh, Bolivia, very cold, very high. Uh, but it's possible that uh, the, uh, it was under the control of the Jesuits, and it's possible that the Jesuits did set up a printing press up there. There's some indications, but I've never been able to uh, prove it. But the reason I say that is what you see here uh, is, of course, an Inca uh, confessing before a Jesuit, as you can see very clearly there. And we know that this is an elite Inca because he has uh, a, uh, the orejones, or this, this school earring, that is the mark of an elite Inca. Uh, and you see uh, the devil, I mean, his, uh, first you see the uh, uh, guardian angel behind him as he confesses and, and sins and lies, etc. All the motifs that we're very familiar with are coming out. Uh, and you see the uh, devil with his hands raised in fisted rage there. Uh, but up above, you see the souls entering into heaven. Uh, and there's certain iconographic uh, clues there that situate this in the area of Koyasuyu, or that is Lake Titicaca. So this is what makes me think that, A, there's a Jesuit there, and B, uh, the other individuals are from there. And this is probably where the printing press uh, was, and that this, this plate may have it was cut there. And what's interesting about that is that it is in a mannerist style, uh, and we know that uh, the first... Uh, uh, painter that the Jesuits called to Peru, a man named Bernard Bitti, uh, it comes in, uh, and is traveling in the 1580s, 1590s, uh, and is in this area. He may have actually cut this uh, print. Uh, and the reason this, this plate survives is because on the back is a painting that is not his, but is painted in this manner uh, style. So... Uh, this is probably another Italian who has been cutting this. He also does sculpture. We know that. Uh, but the point is that the pages that are pulled off of this are going to be given out and to indigenous uh, individuals with the idea that the uh, lower-ranking uh, natives there are seeing one of their esteemed leaders confessing. And confession, of course, uh, is one of the sacraments that's instrumental uh, to uh, 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 gaining heaven. And what you see here is a pen and ink drawing using, however, the, the techniques both of, uh, this is in a thousand-page letter to Philip III, uh, which there's 400 drawings. The drawings are done copying a print style, but also the composition of this. Uh, it's, this is in Denmark, the Royal Library. It's by a native Andean, Wamampoma de Ayala. But he even includes catchcalls here. That is, he's imitating a printed book. And they're paginated. It's not folio. That is, each page has a number, even though it gets them out of order. But uh, the point is... Uh, 
that is, he's imitating a book. But what he shows you here are two Indians praying with a rosary with one of these prints of crucifixion hung up on the wall. So, and we know from documents that these things are being uh, given out to indigenous peoples for devotional practices. Of course, there are later texts that say, wait a minute, they're not really using these properly. Uh, and this, it, it's, it's a very uh, difficult uh, argument between do we give them out or don't we give them out. Um, um, but, uh, and this, I should say that, that uh, this uh, manuscript is coterminous with that uh, print that you, I mean, the, the plate that you see there. Pictorial prints were not the only things that were attained by Indians and Mexicans. And one of the most important pieces of print acquired by the newly Christianized Mexican and Peruvians were both legal documents and indulgences, as again depicted by Wamampoma, which you see there on the left. Uh, and uh, the priest hands him a written letter, uh, which says, in Quechua, Kai Michuri, uh, and it, which means, here, my son, uh, you have your letter. Uh, to which uh, the uh, native responds in a mangled Spanish, mandamiento de amparo confiado, which roughly translates, in the titles of possession of my lands I trust. So that this, this document here, uh, which is a printed document and then is signed, is used actually in legal courts, but that is the idea of printing now moves into another arena of values that never existed in the Andes before, and that is private ownership of land and how it's demonstrated and proved. And it's here that printing and the printed documents intersect between these two cultures in litigation. Um, the other document one that you all recognize, uh, in which uh, one trusted, hopefully, was the indulgence. And the indulgence uh, was purchased, such as this 1578 papal bull, uh, executed, printed in Madrid, taken to the New World, uh, and it was found on the chest of a seemingly pre-Hispanic mummy of an Andean lord that was excavated on the coast of Peru at the end of the 19th century by an archaeologist named Adolf Bandelier. And he sent this mummy back to uh, the New York Public uh, uh, Museum of uh, uh, Natural History, uh, describing how wonderful it was. Uh, this is a great example of pre-Columbian mummy until they opened it completely up and found the indulgence like that on his chest. So he was playing at both sides. Uh, he was interred as if he were an Andean uh, with his soul going uh, to the Andean afterlife. But just in case, you need indulgence. Uh, the point is that this is this cultural world in which these objects and signs and prints uh, are intersecting with other worlds. It goes both ways. Uh, what's important also is that there were printed Quechua sermons that were read by priests, written by priests, and, and then preached, exhorting the importance of such 
printed pages for the salvation of sinners and the necessity of having to re-up. In other words, as you know, indulgence only lasts for about three years. Uh, and the sermon says, well, yes, it may only last three years, but you need to buy a new one because even though this uh, is over in three years, you keep sinning, so you're going to need a new one. Uh, the point is that the, there was a massive production of indulgences printed in Spain, carried to the New World. And we know this because of, uh, of a site that's recently been excavated in the north of Peru, which is very dry, in which there was all kinds of the church had collapsed, and there was all kinds of uh, paper uh, residue, and most of it was indulgences. But indulgences were also sold uh, to build the New World. Uh, and so what I show you here is the first extent engraving from Mexico made by Samuel uh, Samuel Stradness, a Flemish engraver who came to Mexico at the turn of the uh, century, uh, that is around 1600, and produced an indulgence in 1608 for the Franciscans to raise money for their mission in Mexico City. And here you see the plate on the right, and there is the uh, print that it produces. Uh, and you can, uh, we see here in the center uh, uh, the text, the indulgence, the need for the prayer of sinners by the brothers. And around the border are various miraculous invent, uh, interventions performed when praying to St. Francis for uh, his intervention on rough seas, uh, torture, sickness. Uh, and at the top, we see the image of St. Francis himself. The plate appears actually to have been brought from Antwerp, uh, as it was very much uh, like those that were produced there, and then worked in Mexico. And it survives also because there was a painting on the back of it, backside. Now, I bring this up because Samuel Stradinus' 1608 uh, indulgence is the model for the most famous uh, printed page in Mexico. This is the first uh, uh, image, uh, engraved image of the Virgin of Guadalupe, uh, which you probably know uh, is the most venerated image uh, in Mexico and probably in the Americas. Uh, and Stradinus produced uh, this uh, engraving, and you can see how uh, they're very similar in composition. Uh, and lettering, etc., uh, just a few years later. And it, too, is an indulgence. Uh, this, uh, the image of the miraculous Arcapoeta image, that is an image not made by human hand, that is the Virgin, appears at the top. And then, like the previous engraving in 16.8, is surrounded by eight of her miracles. Uh, and the text below the image explains the 49 days of indulgence that the purchase of the print affords the faithful uh, who give the monies, because that money will go towards the building of her new shrine in Tepeyac, where she first appeared to Juan Diego. Uh, here the indulgence is meant more, I think, for a Spanish elite audience that is a Spaniard or a Creole, Criollo, 
And the reason I say that is that there is no image of Mexican, of a Mexican. There's no image of Juan Diego to whom she first appeared. The point is that even, even as certain ecumenical cults take hold, such as the Virgin of Guadalupe, there are different publics to which such prints and engravings are meant to appeal. So that the print that I just showed you from Peru with the confessing Inca true, is clearly meant to go to an indigenous public. The one that you see here is clearly meant to go to the elite. And why? Because there's more money that are going to come from the Spanish to build this church than is going to be gathered by the uh, 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 priests in Lake Titicaca. Within the dissemination of books and prints and engravings uh, so as to interconnect and communicate, this new technology does, as Benedict Anderson uh, says, create an imagined community. That is, even though there are these differences, when you look at these prints, you can see that they are at least speaking to each other, even if they're not speaking to the same public. And by doing that, you're creating what he calls a, but a, an imagined community. He creates it in a different way. But I think that print here is uni unifying a, a vastly different group of people into what you could call an imagined Christian community. Uh, even uh, as they are, are applied to vastly different local traditions and languages. Thus, I want to suggest that the book and the print become almost a fetishized image, just as I have argued elsewhere that the alphabet becomes, in and of itself, a fetishized image in Europe. I can't go into that, but what happens in the 16th, 17th century are books about alphabets that become images about alphabets, not about anything else, because the alphabet comes to stand for European intellectual and symbolic superiority. Um, and I just show you what I mean here uh, is one last example. Uh, well, not a lot. I got a lot more examples. Uh, I'll show you here just one 16th century example uh, in which the print, uh, the medium is the medium par excellence for spreading both style and iconographic uh, and iconography uh, throughout uh, the Americas, as I mentioned. And I show here how just one late 16th century example from the collection of Rudolf II uh, of a feather work. This is a feather painting. This is all feathers. Uh, as you can see, it's taken from Marco Dente's print of uh, 1508, uh, and it's created by the Amateca, or the feather workers, and this comes from Bernardino Sahagún's great uh, uh, compendium of knowledge about the Aztec, in which he has in chapter 9 of uh, the ninth book, I mean, uh, the ninth book, a whole discussion instead of illustrations about feather workers, as you can see in this example here, that this feather worker up here has a print to which he's going to be making into feather work. I can't go into it. 
But what you see then is something that's going the opposite way. That is, it's going into indigenous uh, uh, media and being transposed. Another important source for a variety of media in the New World is a very important book. And this is one that Isiara's Arte es bellissima, por la cual se enseña escribir perfectamente. It was first published in the 1540s, and what we see here is the title page. It's a very complicated book in terms of text, image, and media, as Jessica Berenbaum has uh, detailed. Aside from teaching various forms of writing, it also includes images of the holy names of Jesus and Mary. And what you see here is the title page uh, and the portrait of, uh, of the author Juan de Isiad. And I just have to stop to say that one of the great conundrums he has and he talks about in this book is that I'm teaching you how to write, but I'm doing it through printing. It's antithetical. The medium is antithetical to the teaching of writing. Uh, but he knows that, and so he's caught in this conundrum. It's, 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 it's a really wonderful text. Uh, but he gives you, you know, uh, historiated Gothic lettering as is written in Saragossa. I don't know if it is written like that in Saragossa. It doesn't matter. He says it is. Uh, uh, but you also has uh, these... Uh, 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 the uh, letters of the holy names of Jesus, and I don't, I can't detail the different letterings here. But rather, um, uh, what is important is that this book also becomes a source of emulation in feathers. Uh, that is, the mystical names of Jesus and Mary are copied into uh, this bishop's mitre. Uh, uh, and they come from ECR. Uh, and it's very clear, uh, you know, you, uh, that you have here. And there's some additions such as the Mass of St. Gregory at the bottom, etc. But uh, it certainly is clear enough uh, that this is at least one of the sources. And what you're seeing here is one of several bishop mitres, most probably made in Michoacan, that is that area to the west of Mexico City, around 1555. And this particular example is in the treasury of the Milan Cathedral, as it was given by Pope Pius uh, IV to Carlo Borromeo around 1565. The mystical, almost apotropaic nature of the lettering now becomes brilliantly transcendent in feathers, and endows the object and the image and the letters with a preternatural power that combines new world and old world spirituality. And I have to say uh, that there's many people who worked on uh, feather work, including myself, and one of the things that these feather uh, images have is not just their materiality, but it is the spirituality that actually accompanies the brilliance of these feathers. And what's interesting is the same thing can be said in Peru. What you see here is a Peruvian late 16th, early 17th century tunic or unku, 
Uh, and it's the same one. I just show the two sides. And they have the woven mystical names of Jesus and Mary. Now this tunic was used. It's only about this size. Uh, and the head is ex relatively large. We know what it was used for. It was used to dress the statue of the Christ child in Jesuit churches in southern Peru. And I can't now detail for you how important weaving as a medium is within the spiritual and social life of the Andean peoples. Uh, but just as an example, the royal crown of the Inca is a woven fringe. It's not gold, it's not silver, it's nothing. It's woven. The most important weapon for the Inca is a sling something that's woven. Every bridge is woven. This is a woven world, and when you weave something like this, and this is woven in a very fine tapestry weave, uh, it's, you know, it's months in the making, uh, it is endowed through the materiality and the work with the Andean spirituality, which is then accompanied by the apotropaic mystical letters of Mary and Jesus. Um, and so we see this combination of the mystical names as well as these things down here, which are Andean signs called Tokapu. And they're interspersed here, the geometric abstract signs, and they can't go into those. So you have two symbolic systems operating simultaneously on, in, the, uh, in the same plane of red and blue. And the butterflies actually refer to the soul. That's their pilpinto in Quechua. Uh, so that we see here a full integration of motifs that empower the object as was draped over the cult statue of the Christ child in which these letters that are ultimately coming out of something like Isiar or, or other models uh, uh, occur. The written, printed, mystical names become writ large, actually, in the great monastic compounds built throughout Central America in the 16th century. And I'm going to just show you just quickly two of them, three of them. This one is known Malinalco, right here. Uh, and it, Malinalco is right down here, and where this is, picture is taken from is from a, an Aztec temple that was carved into the living rock. It's very often that they will place these uh, uh, monastic communities near a uh, uh, Aztec or even older uh, ancient site. Uh, uh, the architecture is intentionally and impressively grandiose, as you see here, uh, because there are only two or three people living in here. Uh, these are built for the indigenous communities. Uh, and it has a large uh, single hall church, and we're not going to talk about that. But what we're going to talk about are just looking at the murals in the cloister here. That is, you enter in from the Portaria here, and this is the cloister here, where Jeanette Peterson has uh, beautifully uh, described these paradise murals uh, that were painted here uh, in the uh, uh, lower cloister. And 
interspersed with which and the the garden uh, paradise gardens that are depicted here mix European and uh, New World flora and fauna, which is not so extraordinary. Uh, they have chocolate, for example, but interspersed. Uh, we can see the mystical names uh, of Mary and Jesus emblazoned on the walls, as you can see here. Uh, this, however, is not the only writing on the walls, as Peterson has pointed out, because the index of the artist is also present, as the Aztec glyph for the painter, that is Tlaquilo, is depicted in a uh, speech scroll emanating from a flower and terminating an acanthus leaf. And here is this acanthus leaf. Uh, it, I mean, here is the uh, speech scroll, typical uh, Aztec speech scroll. You see the acanthus leaf here. But right here is the sign, the glyph for artist, Plaquilo. That is, he's signing it, not by his name, but by who he is. So again, you have this intersection of the holy name of Jesus with the name, at least, of who this person is who has painted it. These are all indigenous peoples who are painting this. Uh, here we see two forms of writing appearing together, performing differently, perhaps, but interfacing just the same. The transposition of the text of the book onto the walls of these monasteries in fact, almost reaches a fetishistic level in many of the murals of the Augustinian monasteries. And I just show quickly another one uh, here, uh, Alcoman. Uh, and Alcoman is, Alcoman is right here. And these, I should say, are all the monastic communities who were built within about a period of 50 years in Mexico. I mean, it's just this, there hasn't been a landscape that's been uh, transposed as, as such as happened in Mexico. But Alcoman is another Augustinian monastery, but I just show you here again, it has this massive uh, forest-like, uh, fortress-like structure, as has been noted. Uh, but if you walk in uh, and you look at the apse, all of a sudden you see these giant figures sitting ex cathedra, but they all carry large books. They're all reading books, as you see here. Uh, all of them either have closed or open books. Uh, and, of course, you have written the name of Christ. Uh, and another uh, uh, area is uh, Octopan, another Augustinian. I'm not going to show you where it is. Just the same. But as you come in again, you have uh, the church fathers, all of the seated reading, uh, as you can see here. That is the book here is instrumental in the iconography of the history of the church. This is the this is uh, a religion of the book. It is now no longer pantheistic. It's monotheistic, uh, and this is the word of God as it's writ large on the walls here. Uh, and so, as I just give you a few more examples, we're writing. Nobody can read here, but there are these. Uh, 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 writings throughout them. Uh, and in the apps, the most, I think, poignant image here is, of course, people lost in the wilderness. So you have these Augustinians who, and you have to remember, these poor Augustinians, there's two or three of them out there by, at maximum, 
sometimes it's just one in these communities uh, with the indigenous people. But here is San Agustin, the center, as you see here, uh, reading uh, to the brethren. The point is that as we've traversed this, the book is both transported uh, as a book, as a print. The printing press is brought quickly over, used uh, to produce uh, knowledge as well as to produce uh, the instruments for uh, catechism uh, and conversion. Uh, but it also becomes a subject in these architectural spaces uh, uh, in which there is a reification of, of the book in a very uh, telling way. And I'll end then with these two books because it reverts back. It goes back into uh, the, uh, the book itself. And what I mean by that is this brings me to the conclusion that these images of reading and books and the written names of Jesus and Mary in many ways allegorize the spaces where they occur. They transform just as the catechetical texts instruct. And these two interrelated books demonstrate how one was to see this new world, almost to enter into it, to experience it, to move through it, but, as I said, for different reasons. Diego Valadez's 1578 Rhetorica Christiana and Theodore de Bree's 1588 publication uh, that we see here are important here. Diego Valadez was a Franciscan. Uh, he may have been born in Spain or he may have been born in the New World. This debate on this. Uh, but what we do know is they entered into the Franciscan order in 1549, where he studied in the great monastery of San Francisco in Mexico City. And after preaching in the north region among the Chichimec, and that's the wild people, uh, in fact, his compatriot was killed, he lost his library there, uh, uh, he left uh, Mexico in 1571, and he arrived in Rome in 1578, where he was at the court of Pope Gregory, and there's some reason to think that he actually helped think uh, through the revision of the calendar there, but I can't go into that. But he then begins his work on the Rhetorica Christiana there. Valadez was uh, fluent in three Indian languages, as well as Spanish, uh, and uh, his book, the Rhetorica Christiana, although published in Italy and uh, uh, written in Latin uh, is sent back uh, to the Americas and you find it in libraries all over. You find it in uh, Francisco de Avila's inventories. You find, I've, I've seen copies in uh, uh, the Dominican uh, monastery in Quito, etc. But what's important right now is one section of the uh, book which is where he teaches uh, Ars Memorativa, or uh, Artificial Memory. This is the largest, longest uh, discussion of artificial memory written by a Spaniard in the 16th century. Uh, but it's about using artificial memory in America. This is 
uh, prior to the Jesuits taking it to Japan, uh, China, should I say. In fact, it's pretty clear that, that uh, what's his name, uh, takes it from uh, uh, Valadez and takes it to China. Uh, Valadez is, uh, uses both text and image to take you through artificial memory as it's used in America. But what's going to be important is that, and those of you, does everybody understand the, the, how artificial memory is conducted? You construct a structure in your mind, and then you uh, imagine this in loci. You just go around and you leave things in there, and as you, which are attached to text that you remember, so that as uh, as you walk through it, it's it's based upon Cicero in the anonymous rhetorica ad uh, herenium. Uh, it's a classical uh, rhetorical device that he resuscitates for teaching rhetoric in America. Uh, and he begins, of course, with an image of uh, Mexico, which I'm going to skip over. Uh, and then he has, when he comes, this is the first image, as you see here, of what he's going to be talking about. And I show you the pages because these images all have letters that then are referred to here in the text. So the text refers to, the, the image comes first, actually. But what happens is, as you walk through this image, and this is an uh, allegorical image of the memory palace being brought to America by the first 12 Franciscans. Uh, it's the Ark of the Covenant, but in it is memorized the entire uh, Bible. Uh, and then around it are different activities of the Franciscans as they evangelize. But the space that he's using here are the spaces I just showed you. These are the monastic communities. Uh, he's allegorized it here in terms of this uh, walled area. But that's what he's referring to. So what he has done has taken those spaces, through, like the, the monastic communities I've just shown you, uh, writ large with all the paintings of books, and reduced it back into this book. And what happens in this text is that as you read it, you will he'll take you through A, B, so B, baptism, and he'll explain baptism. But then he explains Pedro de Gante, teaching who's up here, and he takes you out of this meta-image, and you zoom into this. And he will explain this image as being part of that. So it's very virtual, as if you had a computer. You could just you keep going deeper and deeper. And then you come back out. So you're going in and seeing something that's not here. You're going into these interiors. And he, he explains this within the memory palace. So that you have this walking through this space, as if it were real, as if it were one of these churches that I've just shown you, except it's taken back now and reconceptualized within uh, the artificial memory to impress upon 
the reading audience, specifically in uh, Europe, how this conversion is taking place. And he says, although we know that's not true, that he's invented this. The Franciscans have invented this. And he is the one that has invented these images. Now, what does that have to do with something like uh, this book printed by <clears throat> Debris, a Protestant, selling land in Virginia for Protestants? That's, this is the first of the vo Grand Voyages uh, of uh, Harriet's um, uh, tract in which you have images from uh, John White. It is true, a brief account here. I'm just about finished. He goes to, it begins with Adam and Eve, uh, the fall, but also the idea of the, uh, of, of, uh, the paradise of America. They are, his drawings, or his prints, and this is a, a uh, uh, colored print of John White's drawings of the town of Skelton. And I just want to show you that he's going to do the same thing, not as a memory palace, but he's going to take you through. This is a, the meta image. This is the image to which we're looking at an Indian village in Virginia. In White's drawings, there are no indices to tell you what you're looking at. You have A, B, D, C. And... <clears throat> What he tells you is, as you walk through, and when he has the text, is he will walk you through the town, describing it here, uh, and then he will say, for example, they have also, after all, a broad plot where they meet with their neighbors to celebrate their chiefdom uh, as the 18 picture doth declare and a place. And so, what do you see? All of a sudden you see this. It's not in that major that image. Just as the, the, the priest, the Franciscan preaching in a, a church, you go inside the community. And then he also talks about this image. Again, uh, it's number 22... Yeah, where they have all of their chiefs, which is over here. You go into this, this building here, and you can see what's there. That is, you have the meta image just as you had in uh, Valadez, and you go in, and then you come back out. The point is that you have this image-text relationship in which the description of the whole and the parts, if you had just the image laid out, you couldn't see it, but you go into it in each case. The point is that no one, that the, this is a new world in which you need new ways of thinking about how to represent what you have experienced for those who will never experience it. 
And what it does is it three-dimensionalizes in some respect the idea of moving from a bird's-eye view into the interior of a building and then back out again as if you were moving. Uh, and if I, uh, what Valadez tells his audience is that um, he begins, one ought to select a universal before we begin particulars. Above all, the places are to be known, and the distributor of the places ought to act like an ingenious architect who imagines in his mind a house full of a variety of rooms where he builds them in reality. The order of the building, the places, is also necessary. Where there is no order, there is confusion. Knowing what to do and knowing in what order is not proper to perfect knowledge. For this reason, when you go about selecting the places, you will keep this order. And he says, you enter a monastery or an orchard, and if you have entered the lintel of the first door on the left, when you enter, designate as the first place. Then, after the lintel in which you have signaled as the first place, give a, a distance of six or seven feet, according to which the site permits. So all of a sudden, in your mind, you were beginning to walk around. You were touching the architecture. You're touching these places. So that experience of reading becomes a tactile experience uh, in which you, in your mind, I move around. And I think that, and I, I mean, I can't say that this happens, but it, uh, this, is this is printed 10 years before Debris organizes White's drawings with this text. And I, I have a feeling that, that, that he understands that this is not a memory palace, but it is a way of moving the now, not a religious person, but a buyer into this new world that they would purchase. And so I would end just by saying that printing uh, and prints uh, and books uh, have a, a, a larger life in this intersection between the discovery of the new world and the discovery of the printing press. Thank you. Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps, such as Podcast Republic. Please rate and review our channel, as it helps others to find out about our work.